Dave Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The U.S. dollar holds its retreat against the euro while Asian stock futures are mixed before the U.S. Fed reports on monetary policy. Oil sinks for a seventh day ahead of data on American crude supplies and China stocks break a 15-year link with Hong Kong as rates diverge. The FOMC's two-day meeting kicked off yesterday with its highly anticipated statement and press conference expected later this afternoon. Investors are looking at whether or not the word patient remains in the text as an indication of when short-term interest rates might go up. Tempest Investments' John Schofield joins us this morning to tell us about the market impact of this much-awaited decision. Then we have uh, Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce's David O'Rear talk about the latest on Hong Kong business competitiveness. And our last guest is Bloomberg's Sterling Wong from Singapore, and he tells us all about the richest man in India. City Trust's Stuart Alcroft joins us as guest host today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. So, Stuart, how much of a deal, how big of a deal, I should say, would it be if the Fed removes the words patient? Oh, I think it's just what it's just a matter of timing, isn't it? Whether it's this time or next time or the time after. Um, I think the market is expecting some change, even if it's only just to the words, but a, an indication would be good. Well, that's certainly what analysts are saying. Uh, U.S. stocks finished mostly lower this morning ahead of the closely watched Fed policy announcement. But tech shares were generally higher on news of a potential new Apple television venture. The Dow ended at 17,849, down 128 points. The S&P 500 dropped a third of a percent to 2,074, while the Nasdaq finished a fifth of a percent higher at 4,937. IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde has warned investors to brace for volatility from the Fed's upcoming action. The United States will raise short-term interest rates, uh, and they are likely to do that later this year. Specific indicators that it is analyzing with great scrutiny, that country is probably going to start the process of normalizing its uh, monetary policy, which has been anything but normal because it was unconventional and because it was navigating in very uncharted water uh, in the last few years. And even if this process is well managed, uh, the likely volatility in financial markets as a result of the process could give rise to potential stability risks. In Europe, former ECB Director of Monetary Operation Francesco Papadia says that QE is working more than expected. Many people, including myself, thought uh, that most of the effect uh, would be at announcement. Instead, we have seen uh, that as uh, the ECB came into the market, um, the prices uh, have moved a lot, and by prices I mean both uh, bond yields uh, and uh, the, uh, the stock exchange and the, the exchange rate. So the first step uh, in, in the program uh, that was this famous portfolio balance effect 
whereby people would be moved from safe sovereign uh, government bonds into riskier assets is, is, is working. Now, of course, it remains to be seen how this will translate uh, to, to the real economy and mostly to inflation, which is a big worry uh, of uh, the ECB. Uh, but so far, the signs are, are, are good. The signs are favorable. Indeed, they're surprised on the upside. Also in Europe, however, Greek, uh, uh, Greece is really not helping the situation. And uh, one begs the question as to whether Greek authorities are realistic about how dire the country's situation is. Greece and the creditors should uh, reach uh, an agreement uh, where you would have three components. First, the Greeks would do a very strong structural adjustment program that would bring both fairness and economic performance. Uh, the creditors uh, should uh, reduce uh, the burden of the debt, not the debt itself, but the burden of the debt uh, on, on Greece, which is, uh, which is excessive. And third, and least important, I would say, uh, Greece should not be obliged uh, to pursue as much austerity as was written in the, uh, in the old program. So that is very clear, very simple, uh, I would say obvious. But then every day uh, something comes uh, that makes uh, the process more, more difficult, um, mostly from the Greek side, uh, but also uh, sometimes from the side of the, uh, of the creditors when, when they seem to ask for capitulation uh, of, uh, of Greece. Um, and, and, and of course, the, the timing is getting shorter and shorter because, I mean, the cash problem uh, of Greece is getting more and more serious. What seemed to be a recovery in economic activity uh, seems to have been broken. Uh, the improvement in uh, the uh, primary surplus uh, is, is, is jeopardized. France, Germany and Italy will join the UK in becoming members of a Chinese-led Asian development bank. Last week, the US issued a rare rebuke to the UK over its decision to become a member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. The BBC's Tho Leggett reports. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is the brainchild of Beijing. It'll provide loans for major projects in areas such as transport, energy and telecommunications across the Asia-Pacific region. Many commentators see it as an extension of Chinese economic power and an implied challenge to existing institutions such as the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. Although more than 20 countries are involved, China is expected to remain the new bank's largest shareholder and to provide much of its funding. Now European governments appear keen to get on board. Germany, France and Italy have followed Britain's lead in announcing plans to become founder members. And China says they're very welcome. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is an open, inclusive, multilateral investment institution. China welcomes whatever country that wishes to be a founding member to join the AIIB. The positive participation of countries within and outside of the region can show the broad representation of the AIIB. China hopes that all relevant countries will work together to build the AIIB and realize a win-win professional and highly efficient infrastructural investment platform. The establishment of AIIB will be an efficient supplement in the Asian region for the existing multilateral banks such as World Bank and Asian Investment Bank so that they can jointly provide investment and financing for the construction of infrastructure in the Asian region. But all of this makes Washington deeply uneasy. 
Last week, the White House said it expected Britain to use its membership to push for high standards of governance within the bank. Officials also reportedly complained about the willingness of some governments to do Beijing's bidding. European countries are keen to attract investment from China to boost their flagging economies. But analysts say the US, by contrast, has much to lose if the new bank undermines its own economic influence in the Asia-Pacific region. All right, let's uh, bring in our first guest of the morning, John Schofield, who is a director at Tempest Investment. Good morning, John. Good morning, Rita. So, John, you know, uh, there's a 15-year link uh, between Chinese and Hong Kong stocks, uh, which have been working in tandem uh, for most of this time. However, this link is breaking down. China's central bank is easing monetary policy, but with the Fed getting close to hiking borrowing costs, that, of course, is going to naturally transmit to Hong Kong through the peg. What do you think this reflects? Um, if you're talking the... Um the differential between uh, E shares and uh, H shares, the, the you know the Hang Seng China Enterprise Index. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yes, there has been ex- an extraordinary divergence. Now it's, I think we're back at a thirty percent um, premium for for the Shanghai uh, market over over the H shares in Hong Kong. So that's um, that's been and that's developed uh, in the last three four months. Um, it is. As you point out, it's, it's simply that China has changed its monetary policy, and we've gone into into a gradual easing mode. <coughs> Still, probably in the early stages, uh, which was reinforced the other day uh, by the premier, I, I believe. Um, but the the fact that the the H shares have gone to big premium uh, shows simply that you know we're dealing with a closed capital market, so money cannot freely move in and out to arbitrage the differential. Um, and, and um, you know, domestic investors, retail investors in in uh, in, in Shanghai in particular, have you know uh, suddenly got the got the bullish spirit back, and they've been chasing the market higher John, uh, quite aggressively. What do you think that the <clears throat> Fed decision is going to mean for Hong Kong markets? Um, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's going to have that much direct effect on. Um, uh, Hong Kong. Well, let's first of all think about what what, what effect it's going to have on the on the U.S. Uh, equity market. Um, <clears throat> my view is, I think by the time we actually get uh, an interest rate hike, it's going to be very small and it's going to be very late in the market. I think the market will be uh, well well prepared. I mean, we're already we're going right through na- na- through now. We're going through the you know the typical disc- discounting uh, process. Um, and uh, you know the U.S. economy is is strong. The uh, U.S. stock market has remained pretty stable. We've been uh, we've we've been in pause mode really. Uh, the the market, the index, the S and P five hundred, been grinding very slowly higher over the last um, six to nine months. Does the strength uh, of the U.S. of U.S. growth at all mean better prospects for Hong Kong than China? Um, well, no, I don't. I don't think so. Unfortunately, you know, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong stock market certainly is, you know, is um, is dominated either by China counters or, uh, you know, traditional property blue chips, which are probably not going to go very far. Uh, the Hang Seng Index is, continues to go nowhere, partly because we've got these different uh, cross currents going on. Um, a bear market, frankly, in, in the largest counter, HSBC. Uh, offset by these rallies in China and so on. We've uh, talked before about this uh, discount or premium, if you like to look mm. at it that way, between the H and the A shares. And uh, 
in a normal set of circumstances, you would find that those that see the discount would be all over buying it. But the only people that see that as a discount are those that are in China. And no one in China seems to be active in buying H shares, even though the Stock Connect system is now set up. Why? Um... Well, the Stock Connect thing is uh, fiendishly complicated, as far as I can say. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still early days. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's obviously part of a matter of education. Mm. I don't know how easy... I frankly don't know how easy it is for, for sort of... For mainland organisations, it's pretty easy to use Stock yeah. Connect these days. And, yeah. But, but uh, the fact is that they seem to be happy to buy the A shares, which has got yeah. this yeah. big big premium. Um, you know, you, you no, no logical reason. It's only a few months. Yeah, I think it will just take take a little while for yeah. things to but, but would Hong Kong do better if it had less uh, China stocks on its list? Uh, the index, no, yes. because I think, you know, we've got most... Um, the, the brutal truth is that most um, uh, most of the, you know, the Hang Seng 35, uh, things like HSBC, mm. Macau mm. Gaming Stocks, which is... You know, originally <laughs> we had a fantastic mm-hmm. rally in Macau two years ago, but now it's, it's a disastrous bear, bear market uh, for all the well-knowners. And then, really, all you've got is the um, is the sort of stodgy middle, which is conglomerates, mm. utilities, um, and Hong Kong property going nowhere, uh, which basically a range-bound stock. So, John, mm. reasonable many- dividend. You know, there's sort of a dividend yield on on. on much of the Hang Seng Index. I guess that's a... So many analysts are telling us that they're overweight, China underweight, Hong Kong. Would you agree? Yeah. You'd agree? Uh, yeah. Because yeah. that's where you'll find value in China right now? Uh, yeah, correct. And into the foreseeable future? Correct. And, and growth, you know, growth. Okay. And value, yeah. All right, John. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah. That is John Schofield, and Thanks. he is a director at Tempest Investment. Well, China's industrial production grew at 8.6% year-on-year in January and February, the slowest growth since the global financial crisis. But what does this mean for business in Hong Kong? Let's bring in our next guest of the morning, Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce's Chief Economist, David O'Rear. Good morning, David. Good morning. So, David, you know, with the strength of the U.S. dollar, the eurozone's uncertainty on Greek debt, and uh, sort of other uh, sort of global situations that are happening right now, how does Hong Kong's business community react to all all this uncertainty? Well, we do the same thing we've always done, which is uh, cut back on our costs as far as possible, try and outsource anything that we can get off of the high-cost uh, Hong Kong environment. And maybe look for some new markets. Uh, Latin America is uh, one that uh, is woefully underserved by Hong Kong uh, exporters uh, and certainly one that uh, has some potential for the future. Um, I do think that when the previous discussion about the Fed, I think there is one upside for Hong Kong, which is that we are uh, getting a lot of inflation out of uh, American uh, monetary policy. And if sometime after the summer we begin to get those quarter-point interest rate hikes that will have to show that there is so much demand in America that the concern has flipped to inflation, then we may begin to see some uh, easing of the inflationary impact here in Hong Kong. So how then does China's industrial production, um, you know, being cut down, how, how does that impact Hong Kong and specifically its exports? Well, Hong Kong is, of course, the biggest owner of uh, of Chinese exports. Um, my estimate is we have between 30 and 40 percent 
complete ownership control of China's exports. Uh, you can base that on the fact that we have over 50% of all foreign investment that has gone into China has come through Hong Kong, and that over 50% of Chinese invest exports are from foreign invested companies. So as these were the earliest decisions, I think it's, it's fair to say that Hong Kong really does control the biggest part of, of China's uh, exports. And that means making a decision on, on what is made, where it's going to be made, um, where it's going to be sold, and at what price. You, you talk about Hong Kong's competitiveness being um, sort of falling a little bit, but with the unemployment levels so low in Hong Kong, um, how much can Hong Kong do to improve its competitiveness? It is, it is a challenge. I mean, we have a high-cost environment that uh, is hard to get away from. Mm. Uh, we have the real estate prices, we have the labor prices, uh, and, of course, we have the currency that is, uh, is not in our control. So what we need to do is to zero in on those few things that we can actually control. And uh, for some operations, there may be some way of, of reducing the costs in Hong Kong by pushing things a little further up the river. Um, but really, we're getting down to some fiscal issues. Our, yeah, but our Hong Kong is very much becoming a service economy these days, so so the manufacturing side is becoming less important. Servicing well, is becoming more important. Well, we never had more than about 25% manufacturing, mm. uh, and now it's below 2%. But that is, again, limiting our definition of Hong Kong to, you know, right up to the boundary. Mm. If we include Hong Kong-owned factories in the Prover Delta, we're going to have a substantially different structure to the economy. Okay. But it's the fiscal side. The one thing that we can really control is how much money does the government take out of the business sector. Uh, and if you look at a place like Taxes, Singapore... Taxes, mean? Absolutely. And fees and charges as well. Mm -hmm. I was very, very happy to see the financial secretary uh, suspend collection of some fees and charges because these are paid whether you make a profit or not. So but the when discussion... You look at the the tax system you have in... Mm -hmm our main competitor, Singapore, you have a two-tier tax system mm. where smaller uh, companies or those with a, a lower uh, revenue, taxable revenue, are, are taxed at a lower rate. And we don't. We just say everybody gets hit by the same 16.5% uh, profits tax. So, so you, you would be in favor of a goods and service tax here? A goods and service tax is a whole different issue. Now we're talking about broadening the tax base. Well, that's what the I same was thing in the about, end. Though, to what I was talking about was reducing the tax on, for example, the first $2 million of taxable mm. profits to mm. a 10 percent rate. Mm. That way your, your smaller companies get a break that puts them on an even footing with uh, their competitors, in, particularly in Singapore and throughout the region. Our, our effective tax rate is actually quite high compared to our neighbors. On the issue of broadening the tax base, um, we went through the, the Morris Jung uh, study back in 2001 which said that a GST was the best possible uh, solution. We then had a complete uh, rejection of that on political grounds. So we're at the point now where unless somebody has a fantasy that we're going to suddenly reverse ourselves and embrace the GST, we're going to have to find some other way of doing it. David, okay, so we've said 25% manufacturing growth of services, uh, you know, Hong Kong becoming, uh, you know, a service economy. Are there other business sectors um, that you foresee will grow? Tech, perhaps, internet, or anything else? Um, I'm going to leave tech aside because, first of all, it's, it's intensely political at this moment with the, um, the Innovation and Technology uh, Bureau. Um, and I'm also going to leave it aside for the other reason that we don't necessarily have all of the components that go into making a high-tech hub. 
um, it's more than just you know laying some fiber optic cable and, and putting up some fancy uh, offices for startups. What are we missing? What we are missing is the link between uh, universities and uh, the private sector. We have the potential, because of such a, a marvelous manufacturing base uh, across the border, that we can do some really innovative things on product development, on taking research to the next uh, level beyond the prototype. What we don't necessarily have is that first spark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is something that is, it is, it is coming from people who can live anywhere in the world, do any kind of work that they want. They are the uber elite of the the tech world. And to attract them to Hong Kong means that they have to feel that this is one of the best places in the world to live. That means things like uh, air pollution, health care, education for children, uh, all of the cost of living in, in housing and so forth. And all of those things are working against us. Ah, so it comes down to sort of lifestyle uh, benefits or lack thereof to draw in the talent from abroad. But there are other areas where Hong Kong can still have a very uh, strong uh, competitive position. Uh, tourism. If we'll uh, recognize that tourists are actually customers and not enemies, then we can uh, you know, continue to build on this, this wonderful uh, infrastructure that we have here with our fantastic uh, transport, our air connections, uh, and then, of course, Disneyland and Ocean Park and other areas that we could develop. Um, there's also, of course, the whole financial sector, uh, which is um, you know, going to be the, the greatest beneficiary of, of China's outward capital flows. Uh, for generations, we've been managing inward capital flow in, in terms of trade and investment going into China. But now we need to uh, be in the position of, of catching a little bit of that capital that's moving out of China and into other parts of the world. And the way to do that is to be the, the most trusted partner and advisor to the, the owners of the capital. All right, David. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is David O'Rear. He's a chief economist at the Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce. With the opening of Kennedy Town Station and HKU Station on the MTR Island Line in late December 2014, the feeder bus and green minibus services connecting to the new railway have been strengthened. The Transport Department has published booklets to provide information on the public transport services as well as the new transport facilities in the vicinity. For more details, please visit the Transport Department and Public Transport Operators' websites. The time is now 8.25 a.m. And a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up uh, 38 points to 19,475. Australia's ASX index is down 24 points to 5,786. And Seoul's Kospi up two points this morning to 2,032. Well, oil refining a tycoon, Mukesh Ambani, has been the richest man in India since 2012. Or uh, that is according to a Bloomberg Billionaires report. But uh, he's been the richest man since before that, according to Forbes, with a net worth of uh, U.S. 19.2 billion U.S. dollars as of yesterday. But recently, Sun Pharmaceutical Industries founder Dilip Sangvi has replaced him as the richest man in India. So let's bring in our last guest of the morning who broke the news on this, Bloomberg Billionaires reporter Sterling Wong from Singapore. Good morning, Sterling. Good morning. Sterling, you know, a billionaire's net worth fluctuates uh, every now and then according to how high or low the share prices of their companies. 
Why is Dilip's new status as the richest man in India so significant? Well, I mean, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, right? Uh, Mukesh Ambani has been number one in India for you know pretty much forever, at least suddenly in the past decade. You know, even before uh, the Bloomberg Billionaires Index uh, was created. So you know, this is significant because this was the first time ever that Ambani has been overtaken. You know. And I think it also speaks to the wealth creation ability and potential in India. So Ambani's wealth was inherited uh, from his father, who founded Reliance Industries, whereas uh, Shangvi's wealth is basically entirely self-made. So I think you know that that's significant. And also, I think not many people, not even in India, know of uh, Dilip Shangvi. So I think it's definitely newsworthy that you know someone like him, an unfamiliar name, emerges basically out of nowhere for, for the general public anyway, to become India's richest person. Is this a reflection uh, at all, Sterling, on the fact that the pharmaceutical industry is a hot sector in India right now? I think uh, it definitely is. I mean, um, in India, I think the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry is is pretty sizable because there's obviously a, a large domestic market. With you know ever-growing healthcare needs for companies to tap into, so I think the, uh, the the industry has really grown tremendously in size through the development of the generics market. So basically, almost every type of medicine is now made in the Indian pharma industry, and and there are also you know besides Dilip Shangvi, there are other pharmaceutical billionaires in India as well. Uh, there's Dash Gupta, who who's the founder of Lupin, also based in Mumbai. He has about. Uh, 6.3 billion, according to our calculations, and then there's Pankaj Patel, who chairs Cadilla Healthcare. He's worth, you know, around 3.9 billion. So yeah, definitely the the pharmaceutical industry in India is pretty sizable. Okay, we're we're almost out of time. So in 20 seconds or less, can you mention some of the other hot industries uh, in India right now, and whether we can expect more billionaires from them? Well, a research director told me that there's been a shift uh, in the drivers of economies away from the like, heavy industries into like softer industries, you know, such as technology, healthcare, so, you know, things that are more innovative. So, you know, we've seen, you know, like a lot of healthcare billionaires and I think just like how technology in Silicon Valley has minted so many billionaires, I think we're going to see more coming along in India as well. And, you know, obviously my job is to try to uncover them as well. <laughs> All right, Sterling. Thank you so much for joining us this morning with uh, very interesting stuff. That is Sterling Wong, and he is Bloomberg Billionaire's reporter. A quick look at the numbers before we close up uh, for the show. In currencies, uh, one euro currently buys you 1.05 US dollar. The US dollar is trading at 121 yen, and one pound sterling is worth 11 Hong Kong dollars and 45 cents. Gold is currently valued at $1,149 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $53.44. Stuart, uh, uh, we're almost at the end of the show, so uh, parting thoughts? Well, we've got two big uh, announcements in the next couple of days, the FOMC from the United States and the UK budget from London. So we're looking forward to hearing what both of them have to uh, offer. We'll be waiting and watching. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And every Wednesday morning, that is Stuart Aldcroft, uh, City Trust Chairman, our regular Wednesday co-host. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be humid with fog patches in the morning and at night there'll be sunny periods during the day. The temperature right now is 21 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 96%. Time for the half hour news with Sam Butler. 
The government has come under fire over yesterday's decision to approve a third runway at Chetlapcock at an estimated cost of $141.5 billion. The convener of professional commons, Albert Lai, said the government still hadn't supplied the figures to justify the third runway. I have not seen any concrete evidence by the government or the airport authority to show that this project is really needed. The government up to this date has not published a full economic analysis for this project. The last economic analysis we have seen is three years ago. That was a preliminary analysis uh, acknowledged by the uh, airport authority. And at that time, they did say that, you know, when they have all the data, after all the physical study, then they will uh, publish a full economic analysis. A tropical storm has entered the Philippines, potentially threatening residents in low-lying areas in the country's north. Radio Australia's Shirley Escalante reports from Manila. Disaster management centers in the Philippines' northern region have been advised to conduct the preemptive evacuation of families in mountainous regions and in lowlands susceptible to floods and landslides. Farmers in Isabella province have begun harvesting their rice crops, though these are not yet ripe for harvest. Storm Bavi, the second to enter the Philippines this year,